They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any part of it over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning." So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Well, good morning. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, we remember in your presence that you are a God who smiles upon us. Uh, that though we come, whether it be with distraction or a sense of need or whatever our attitudes are as we draw near you, you draw near to us and you speak to us and you show your love to us. And so we ask, uh, knowing that we stand in your grace, that even now uh, you would help us um, so that we can hear what we need to hear, that you would nourish us, that you would shape us, that you would make us more and more the people you have created us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So do you remember what you were doing a month ago? You know, it's kind of hard if you just like suddenly go into date. So just to kind of remind you, a month ago, beginning of October, Cubs were still in the playoffs. They were still reigning World Series champions. The weather was still nice. Um, about a month ago, Donnie St. Germain was preaching here. Do you, do you remember that? It's not that long ago. Hopefully, it doesn't feel that far. far. You can remember it. Well, if we asked the people of Israel the time of this passage, where were you a month ago? Their answer would be, we were in the middle of the Red Sea. Because it's been a month. So a, a month ago, they had this, you know, awesome experience. I mean, we're talking, there's the 10 plagues, there's the Passover lamb, there's the waters being divided. Such an amazing thing. It's so iconic. We even have it in our bulletins. This was this amazing moment. And at the end, in chapter 15, it says they were so excited about what happened that they literally wrote a song and they sang and they danced and they had tambourines. It was like this spiritual high point that they were experiencing. That was a month ago. But it hasn't been quite so awesome since then. For the last 30 days, the people of Israel, those thousands upon thousands upon thousands, have been trudging and trudging for about 150 miles. So that's roughly from here to our state capital, Springfield. Except, of course, there weren't highways that they were walking on. There weren't even nice paths. They've just been walking through wilderness, oftentimes hot, dusty, dry wilderness so that they're kind of covered in this kind of desert sand at the end of the day and their, their throats are so dry they can barely speak. They've had a couple times where God has brought them to an oasis or a place where they can kind of refill on water, but most of the time it's just been walking. And you can just imagine as a parent what that must be like. I mean, this is the worst road trip ever. You've got, you know, kids saying, are we there yet? I am bored. How much longer? I am hungry. And it's that last one that's especially an issue by this point, these 30 days later, because 30 days later, they have no more of their food that they packed with them. They have no more stores, which is a somewhat, well, more than somewhat, a rather frightening thought, because it's not like they can go to the local jewel. It's not even like they can just quick go out hunting or find berries. I mean, when we're talking about, you know, thousands upon thousands. It's not like there's just lots of food around for everyone who needs it. And so they have no reserves. There's no, you know, like storage cupboard where they can go to. And they're looking at their kids who are hungry. They're looking at maybe their elderly parents who are also starting to kind of fade. And they don't have any food. So what happens when God's people have experienced something utterly remarkable just a month ago, but have experienced 30 difficult days since then. 
Well, what we see in our passage is the people of Israel have a meltdown. I mean, this is what they say. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, and he's speaking to Moses and Aaron, you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now that's just, like, that is just not connected with reality in so many different ways. I mean, perhaps the strangest thing is how it begins. They're, they've got this really twisted sense of nostalgia, and it's not just they're saying, oh, we, we miss the meat and the bread. I mean, we can understand that. That's kind of the equivalent of saying, man, I could really use a good burger right now, and that's totally understandable, but that's not just what they're saying. And it's not even saying, wow, I miss the days that I was a slave in Egypt, which would be a problem already. But what do they say? They say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. And I think they're talking about Passover. They're saying, you know that time where God killed a whole bunch of people? I wish he'd killed us as well. We, we should totally not have sacrificed that lamb and painted the, the doorpost. If we had just died then, it would be so much better. They're completely rejecting any of God's kindness in this moment. And not only do they have this twisted sense of nostalgia, but they are remembering things really strangely, aren't they? they they're saying to Moses and Aaron, you brought us out, which is really not connected with reality. I mean, these are two guys, one of whom is afraid to even speak out loud, and he's saying, you guys were the ones who trounced the Egyptians, who brought us through the Red Sea, who did all of this. We know that's not true, but they just don't want to think about what really took place. And what's more, they have a complete misunderstanding of what's going on, of what God is doing. They... It basically says, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Does that make any sense that God went through plague after plague, gave them the Passover feast, brought them through the Red Sea, crashed down upon God's people just so that he can go, okay, now it's time for you to die of hunger. You know, in the Bible, there's frequent warnings about complaining. And it's important to understand what we're actually being warned against. It is not a sin to be discontent. It is not a sin to feel sorrow and to long for something different. I mean, we sang Psalm 42 where there's this crying out to God saying, God, why have you forsaken me? That is showing us that it is right at times for us to be dissatisfied, and to bring our dissatisfaction to God. That is not the complaining the Bible warns against. See, the problem with Israel is not that they were dissatisfied. It's that they rejected God in this. Rather than taking their longing and dissatisfaction and bringing it to God, instead, they, they have this godless complaining. I mean, they deny God in three different ways. They deny God in terms of their understanding. They're like, God was not part of this. It was just Moses and Aaron that brought us out. God is completely removed from the recollection. They deny God in terms of their trust, saying, well, if God is involved, he only did this to kill us. There's no love or kindness of God. And they denied God even when it comes to their desires. If they could choose between God's goodness and experiencing slavery and death, they're saying, we'll take slavery and death, thank you very much. I mean, that's the issue of complaining. It is it's godlessness. Now, we should be careful because it's easy sometimes to just kind of be shaking our head and going, oh, those Israelites, those Israelites. But we should recognize that it's not like the Israelites are an especially complainy people. They're just people. 
And they're not really any different from us. That when we look at Israel, we should recognize that it's actually a mirror to ourselves, that we ourselves engage in godless complaining. Just think about this scenario. Imagine this for a moment, that this coming week you are given some really big project. Maybe it's in school, this big assignment you're supposed to do, or it's work, you've got this very ambitious goal that you're supposed to accomplish, or maybe it's a volunteer organization that has just given you something to do, but it's big. And in fact, the more that you start trying to figure out what you're supposed to do, the more that you realize not only is it big, but it is really hard, and it's going to take an enormous amount of time, and the chances that you're going to fail are pretty high. And so you move from anxiety to frustration to anger. Why did this person give me this stupid project? They just set me up to fail. Why is this working this way? And you just start, you start focusing on that anger and you are so frustrated. Can you imagine ever being in a situation like that? My guess is most of us can. And as you imagine that response, I want you to reflect on what that would be doing you would have removed God from your understanding. You don't see in this moment that it is God that is in control, that even though this other person gave you the project, that even now God is, is involved, you've just basically assumed that God is absent or asleep. And secondly, you have in your heart denied God's goodness. It hasn't even con been conceivable to you that right now God somehow might be showing his grace and his kindness. And even though this is not something that you want, you can trust that God continues to be good. And you've denied God even when it comes to your desires. Because for you, the most important thing right now is success and comfort. And if someone came to you and said, hey, I want you to understand, yep, this is going to be really hard, you're going to get exhausted, and yep, you're going to fail. But here's the good news. God is actually using this to draw you nearer to himself. If you had the choice of saying, that's great, or no thank you, you'd probably say no thank you. See, we, we have that, that same tendency in our own souls, this godless complaining of just kind of turning our backs on God when we face anxiety. And so the question that we ask, if we recognize that even about ourselves, even as we see it with the people of Israel, is what does God do when we have this godless response to suffering? And the answer to me was really surprising. Even though I know this story, it still surprised me because it's so different from how I would respond. What we, what we don't see is God going, okay, if that's how they're going to be with me, then that's how I'm going to be with them. Fine. They don't need me. And the response is not, okay, well, I'm going to let them experience consequences. I will still be with them, but I'm going to punish them. What is it that God does? He, he gives them meat and bread. Right? You know, they say, oh, I wish we could have meat and bread. And God says, okay, let me give you meat and bread. You know, rather than responding to this rejection, to this insult with anger, what does he do? He responds with completely inexplicable kindness. And actually, if we pause to understand how he's showing his kindness, we realize that it goes even deeper than just meeting their felt needs. He does that. He, they, they long for something, and he gives them that. But he actually does something greater. With his kindness, he uses this moment to give them not just what they want, but what they really need. 
he uses this opportunity to help them learn how to relate to him. And that's what we see in this passage, that God uses this opportunity where he shows his kindness in such a way to draw them near to him because that's where their real need is. Their real need is not just of bread. Their real need is for God. And so the first problem that God addresses is their complete failure to see him being involved in reality. Remember, they've just basically said it's Moses and Aaron who somehow did all the miracles all by themselves without God's help. And so God is going to change that. So in verse 6, here's what Moses says on behalf of God. He says, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? In other words, Moses is saying, pay attention. God is going to show you himself. And so what happens? He first has all the people look out in the wilderness, and they see this towering, bright cloud. And it's so clearly different from any cloud they've ever seen that it is a sign of God's glorious presence. And then shortly thereafter, maybe even in the direction they're looking, they see this, this other moving brown cloud, and it's coming, and it's coming, and it's coming, and they realize it's this enormous flock of quail, unlike anything they've ever seen, and it just starts showering down, and everyone who has different twine or that kind of thing, they know how to make traps, and so you trap one, and another, another, and they have just bajillions of quail and the best barbecue ever that night. And then the next morning they wake up, and even though it's, it's hot and it's dry, they look around and it looks like they see frost. But it's not. It's, it's dry and it's flaky. And, and when they look at it, they say exactly what you or I would say. What is that? Which, by the way, is literally what manna means. That's the name that manna has now. It's, they're eating what is that. It's this bread. And, and when Moses answers the question, it's the bread that the Lord God has given you. And, and God has explained ahead of time what is taking place in this moment. He has said, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. So he's saying, I am going to teach you something that you have had a hard time seeing. I am going to pour down my kindness upon you. You have asked for meat, you've asked for bread, you are going to get meat, and you're going to get bread. And what I want you to understand is that this is happening because I am here. Because I am your God, and I love you. You know, that, that is how God continues to act. I don't know if we realize this sometimes, but, but every day we are experiencing God's blessings just raining down upon us. I mean, the beauty of the world around us, the ability to be warm and well-fed, the health that we enjoy, the, the friendships, the family, all of these are gifts that are declaring the glory of God, and each of them are God saying to us, this is from me, look and see, I am here and I am present. Sometimes God shows us this in even more distinct ways. Think of times where you have experienced a moment of anxiety and you've just prayed. Maybe it's even something small like, I cannot find my keys and it's taking me forever. And you pray and then you see God answering. What God is doing is he's saying, I am here. 
With his kindness, he is intending to lift our gaze and recognize that our God is present. And that's what he's doing with manna and with quail here in these moments. He's, he's lifting their eyes so that they can recognize it's not Moses and Aaron. It is God who has been delivering them and caring for them. But he doesn't just do that. He doesn't just show them that he is present. Secondly, we also see that God uses this time. He, he shows his kindness in such a way as to train them. So in verse 4, when God explains to Moses what he's intending to do, he says this, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And that word test here is important. It it can easily be translated train. And that's really the idea. I am going to train them, God is saying. I am going to use this way of giving men a day after day to shape them and teach them how to relate to me, how to depend upon me. And here's how he does it. He first gives two instructions. One instruction is gather everyone just as much as you need for that day. He said, each gather an omer, which of course means nothing to us, but it's about eight cups. So for every person in your household, gather eight cups of this manna, and and all of you do that. So that's one instruction. The second is, and no one keep anything for the next day. Everything you gather, eat. And, And there's two things that he does that accompany these instructions. The first is he ensures that there is plenty of manna. It says there is no one who had too little, no one who had too much. Everyone gathered how he was instructed to gather, and everyone was supplied for. And then the second thing he does is, well, he makes the manna have an expiration date. Or there's some people who don't follow the instructions that God gives, who decides that they're going to save some of the manna for the next day. And we can understand why, can't we? I mean, if they have faced famine, if they have faced foodlessness, they're wanting to hold on to something to make sure they have something for the next day. But they wake up the next day, and what happens to the manna? It's maggot-infested and rotting. And, and God explains, basically, what's going on is God is, well, he's setting up a fairly difficult situation every night for them, isn't he? I mean, think about this. In this way that God has designed things, Every night, they are brought back to the same place they were brought to when they were complaining. Every night, they have no food in their cupboards, no rainy day fund, no resources for them or their families. They are completely without anything to provide for the next day. All they have is the promise of God. And then the next morning, God provides. And then the next night, once again, they've got nothing. And the next morning, God provides. Now, just think of how that would shape you day after day. I mean, just think of what it would be like every night in your homes that you live in to have nothing in the pantry, nothing in the bank account, no way of getting food for your family every day. And then every morning, somehow God giving you the food that you need. At first, it would be terrifying But over time, wouldn't it teach you, as it taught the Israelites, God is there, and he cares, and he provides for you. Now, if you have lived as a Christian for for any extended length of time, you probably have come to realize that this is not just the way that God operated with the Israelites. That God acts in a very similar way in the way that he operates with us today, doesn't he? 
I mean, there are times that we face something that makes us anxious, right? It might be something like an assignment or a project, or it might be a financial concern where we see something a few months away and we don't know how we're going to afford things, or, or maybe there's a conflict with someone, or maybe it's, it's deeper and darker and there's, there's cancer, or we're, we're struggling with, with infertility and it's just breaking us apart, or, or there's even the risk of, of divorce in our relationship. And, and in those moments when we respond rightly, and of course we don't always, but when we respond rightly, we turn to God and say, God, please help me. And what we're asking for in that moment is complete resolution. Lord, heal this completely, end this completely. We want this completely resolved. And sometimes God does that. Sometimes God answers in such a way that all of our anxieties dissipate and we completely see how God is providing. But there's a lot of times that's not how God works. There are a lot of times that what God does in answer to our prayer is give us what we need just for that day. He makes sure that we are provided for just for that day financially. Or as we're facing something that is really hard, he gives us the emotional energy to make it through to the end of the day. And that's how he answers the prayer. And in essence, he says, and you're going to have to trust me to do the same thing tomorrow and then the next day. He even tells us to pray that, doesn't he? Think of what the Lord's Prayer literally says. It's literally, give us today our bread for the coming day. That's a manna prayer. And why does God do it this way? It's not because God has like a cash flow issue. It's not because God is stingy or because we haven't been good enough so that he's not showing the fullness of his grace. It's because God loves us so much that he knows that we don't just need our needs to be resolved, or at least the needs that we think that we have to be resolved. What we need more than anything is him. And so in his kindness, he does more than we ask for because he is shaping us so that more and more we can learn to depend on him and know that he is a good and kind and loving God. He is training us, just as he is training the people of Israel to, to relate to him. Now, there's this one other thing that also he does that's part of this training. It's not just he is lifting their gaze so that they can see that he is there. He's not just training them to know how to depend on him as their God but he also is reshaping their desires. You know, perhaps the most disturbing thing of the complaint is the part that we noticed first, where they are saying, we wish you had killed us rather than sparing our life. We wish we could have stayed as slaves. Now that request makes, that desire makes no sense. They were miserable in Egypt. But I think the only way we can explain why they would think that is because they have never experienced anything else. All of their lives, they have only known slavery. And so the best that life could be is slaves with meat and bread. Anything else is beyond their ability to comprehend. They cannot understand just how good God's intent is for them. Because God's plan is so much different. Do you know... In, in that day, you had a number of other nations who had their own religions, and almost all of those religions had a similar understanding of creation. And their understanding of creation was that the gods, however many there were, eventually made humanity because the gods got sick of doing work. And so they figured if they made human beings, the human beings could do all the dirty work, and then the gods could just relax and enjoy themselves by themselves. Now think about how different what Genesis tells us about the true God is. 
So God makes man and woman on day six. And what is the very next thing that God does on the next day? He makes a day of rest. He says, this is not a day for you to work. This is a day for me and you together to rest and enjoy the world that I have created. Because that's what God's intent is, is for humanity, not to make them slaves, but for fellowship, for joy, for them to experience his goodness. And so what does he do now as he's seeking to train with manna? Through Moses, he tells the people on the sixth day of the week, I'm going to give you twice as much, and here's why. Because on day seven, we're going to rest together. I'm not going to make any manna, and you're not going to collect any manna. Instead, we are going to rest and enjoy this world that I have given you, because that is my intent for you. And I think this would have been almost impossible for the people of Israel to have understood. I mean, think about what they had experienced to this point with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was basically all about using them. I'm going to make you work harder. I'm going to make you work harder. Now you have to gather straw as well, because all you are are my slaves, and all that matters to me is what you do for me. And God is saying, that's not at all what it is. I love you, not for what you can do for me. I want you to enjoy my goodness. I want you to experience rest. And every week, they were being taught that. Every week, it would be a struggle for them to understand, but God is expanding their desires to help them to realize just how good he is and just how good life can be lived with his provision. And we still need to be taught this today, don't we? I mean, you and I, we live in an achievement-oriented world. Our, our work matter, you know, cares about how productive we are, our grades about how well we do. We feel like even with people, we have to prove ourselves. We have to be likable. We always feel like it's about achievements. And so when we come before God, we assume the same thing, that what God wants of us is to be productive for him, is to do good things for him, and that's what makes us valuable to God. And God says, no, that is not at all the case. He says elsewhere, I have a cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need anything from you. I want you to experience life as I have designed it to be for you. I want you to experience my goodness. I want you to rest. God intended us to experience the rest that he created us for. Do you see what he's doing here? This, this kindness of giving meat and bread is not just about satisfying their immediate needs. He's wanting to do something greater for them because they need not just food, they need God. They need to see God. They need to learn to trust God. They need to learn to desire God and all that he has for them. And that's exactly what this is all about. And it's not surprising, I think, when we recognize what what this manna is intended to do, that, that thousands of years later, Jesus says this. He says, that manna, that was just a shadow. And when the people ate this manna, this bread from heaven, as good as it was, they would be hungry again. I'm the real bread from heaven. That was just pointing forward to me. What I have, I am truly the one who is going to connect you to God. I am truly the one who can fill you so that you will never die. Think about how everything about manna is pointing forward to Jesus. What, what is God's response to our godlessness, our complaining, our rejection of God? It's not just giving us bread. It's giving us his son. And when he gives us Jesus, what does Jesus show us? He shows us God. He helps us to see that God is with us. God is here. 
And through dying and rising from the dead, Jesus teaches us this is how you relate. You relate by trusting, not by trying to accomplish things yourselves, but by depending upon me. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. And what does he say to us in our exhaustion? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, I am the true bread from heaven. God has given to you to nourish your souls. Eat and drink of me, and you will be satisfied. And this morning, we have the opportunity once again in a very tangible way to express that reality. Jesus at the table says, this is my body, this is my blood. Nourish your souls on me because I am the bread of life that gives you life. So I invite you even now to to take a moment and prepare ourselves for what we most need. What you and I most need is not a satisfaction to our anxieties. It's not just the bread that we feel like we need right now. What we need is God himself and God offers us himself in Christ Jesus. And so I invite you now just to take some time to acknowledge before God how we in our anxiety sometimes have completely turned ourselves away from him to confess that and to know that we have a gracious God who still responds to us in kindness. And then I'll lead us in prayer in just a few minutes. Lord God, we confess to you our foolishness. Time after time, you have shown us your generosity. Again and again, when we have been in times of need and looked to you, you have provided. And yet, in our foolishness, when we face anxiety or stress, it is so often the case that we forget you. Or even when we remember you, we forget how good you are and how faithful you are. And we forget that our deepest desire is for you. And so we chase after other things, we make other things idols, become angry and anxious. And Lord, in you we have rest. And so Father, we confess our lack of trust, even though you are so worthy of our trust. And we ask for your forgiveness. And we ask even now that as you invite us to this table, as your children, that as we eat and as we drink, that you would nourish our souls on Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Here again, the same words that you've heard before from John 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This 
is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Friends, in Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.